0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Securing Thought Podcast, episode 3 to be exact. This is Hayden Bulbrook. I hope everyone is doing well. Winter isn't quite over yet, but the ending is finally on the horizon, I think. It's been a busy two weeks since I last recorded. I thought I'd give a few updates. First, and although this was last Sunday, the Super Bowl game was great. It definitely rivaled the Clemson-LSU National College Final in the excitement and the suspense. I didn't suspect Kansas City to make that comeback, that's for sure. Also, Shakira and Jennifer Lopez delivered an impressive halftime show. Definitely the best in the last decade, I'd say. And this Sunday was the Academy Awards, where Parasite took the Academy Award for Best Film. It's the first non-English film to do so in the Academy's 92-year history. That's crazy. I haven't seen it yet, but it's definitely on my list, as I've heard nothing but good things about it. Unsurprisingly, as well, Joaquin Phoenix won for Best Actor as Joker, another film that I haven't seen. But quite fittingly, today's podcast is film-themed, and I'll get to that momentarily. Uh, Just a few more updates here. So I've been busy trying to keep my head above water in my master's, and I'm starting to feel like I've bit off a bit more than I can chew with some of the extracurriculars that I've wanted to participate in. But the pathway should bear fruitful rewards, I'm hoping. I thought I'd share that since the beginning of January, I've been keeping a daily journal, and I'm really enjoying it as a way to unwind before bed. It really helps me clear some of the thoughts that I'm not trying to sleep with, as I want to avoid a brain full of chaos. I also subscribe to the New York Times, since it's virtually free for graduate students. It's like $26 a year, plus the first month is free. And I'll tell you why. I realize that it sort of siphons me into one media perspective, but I don't think it's a bad one. The New York Times is certainly well-established and reputable. Overall, I feel I may as well read something credible rather than the clickbait, advertise driven articles that are unfortunately jeopardizing online journalism. And sometimes paying to get past the paywall pays dividends. So, with news in my mind, here's what I'll title the time capsule where I present the current headlines in the news. First, and from the New York Times, Quarantine ordered as cases are linked to shopping center a department store in Tianjin in China a city in China with over 15 million people appears to be a rapid transmission site for the coronavirus which demonstrates the fear of high-density contact as of today, there's been over 1,000 deaths and 42,000 cases with the vast majority being in China. I think some of the pandemonium has dwindled down here in Canada, but it's definitely still in people's minds as per the BBC Tyrannosaurus species named Reaper of Death, found in Canada. This particular dinosaur species stands at approximately 8 feet tall and has sharp teeth nearly 3 inches long. That's pretty terrifying. In two days, I'm departing for the U.S. I will be traveling to the National Archives just outside D.C. to conduct some research. My reading week is coming up. Now, it's probably the best time for me to explain my research to you. Basically, I seek to study post-World War II reconstruction of Munich. Munich, of course, was bombed by the Allies. 17% of its infrastructure was totally destroyed, and a further 80% was damaged to varying degrees. So in other words, the vast majority of the city faced damages of some sort. Policymakers, urban planners, and I suspect the American occupiers, as Munich was part of the state of Bavaria in the south of Germany, which was occupied by the U.S., Uh, So, these groups had to come together to rebuild the city as Germany transitioned to the post-war period. I think this research is a good example of using history to understand how we rebuild in times of upheaval and chaos. Certainly today, wars continue to ravage cities, and climate change will certainly jeopardize cities, especially our coastal ones, as water levels rise. Knowing the steps and considerations to rebuilding allows us to adapt to current and future crises, and to overcome challenges that our cities face. I've posted a video on my website from the GradFlix event that I participated in that explains my research in sort of a cheeky 60 second clip. So the National Archives in Maryland has an extensive record of US, the US occupation of Munich that I'm hoping will bear fruit for my research. I will also be traveling to Munich in the spring and I'm definitely looking forward to that because Munich is my favorite city in Germany. Overall. I'm greatly interested in urban history and urban planning. I think there's a lot to marry between these two subjects. And again, understanding the history of a city is crucial if we want to revitalize them and ensure that they are equipped with the tools to make them beneficial to the most people as possible. Cities are only increasing in size and significance, so understanding their function, their metabolism, the needs and wants of the people living in them is crucial. This is the line of work that I'm gearing toward, hopefully to make a career out of it. On my trip to D.C., I'll be making some stops in some cities with rich, tumultuous histories. First, I'll be going to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Bethlehem is best known for the steel behemoth Bethlehem Steel, that was once one of the most significant steel companies in America, producing steels for American skyscrapers and the U.S. Navy's ships. Like so many industrial companies, its decline started during its prime in the 1950s, and by 2003, it was defunct. Today the remains of the Bethlehem Steelworks have been transformed into a cultural and entertainment center, and a casino has been built there too. My visit here will be brief, but I'm excited to see the remains of the steelworks. America's deindustrialization was truly the too-big-to-fail notion since it devastated many industrial communities in what has been termed the Rust Belt Region, which constitutes the Great Lakes area. Next, I will be making a brief stop in Princeton to tour the Princeton campus which was founded in 1746 as the College of New Jersey. I will definitely be playing lots of Springsteen as I drive through New Jersey. Of course, that's expected. Then I will spend a few days in Philadelphia. I'm a little bit anxious about Philadelphia until I find my parking spot because I've heard that's a bit chaotic, but it looks like a really cool city. After this, I hope to journey down through Pennsylvania into Delaware briefly so I can cross another state off my list, and then carry on into Maryland to the Archives. I'm hoping four days will be enough here, and regardless, that's all I've budgeted since I also want to play the tourist in Pittsburgh and Cleveland on my way back. These are two other post-industrial cities, and the former is kind of the Rust Belt success story, whereas the latter is just starting to find its place in a post-industrial America, from what I hear. Again, I'm really excited to explore the history and architecture of these places. My fingers are crossed for good weather, and something tells me this won't be enough time to really see all of these places. But It's a good taster, and it'll be a nice break from the monotony of schoolwork. I'm truly, truly blessed to have this opportunity to do these types of things, and I'm hoping to do a travel blog and maybe do a few pods on the road, so keep an eye out for that. Now, I've rambled on a lot, but it's time for today's topic. As I mentioned, the Oscars were two nights ago, and I wanted to talk about film and the power it holds over us. First, a tremendously brief history of film. Photography made its introduction in 1839. Not long after that, inventors started experimenting with moving photography through chronophotography, commonly made possible by multiple images rotating on a disk. The breakthrough in cinematographic, that's a hard word to say, motion came on December 8, 1895 in Paris with the Lumiere Brothers public screening of 10 short films. From 1905, the nickelodeons, which charged of course a nickel for entrance, soon replaced vaudeville as entertainment and the silent film quickly grew ubiquitous. By the 1910s, films integrated techniques like continuity, cross-cuts, and POV shots, stuff that we all know all about today. With the taxing effects of World War I on Europe, the United States emerged in the 1920s as the film capital. The introduction of sound in the late 1920s kicked off the golden age of American film that lasted well into the early 60s. The 50s saw the rise of television with both TV films and TV shows. By the 1960s, films were increasingly on location. They were filmed on location outside of the studio. Independent producers and actors, growing power and flexibility, stripped away some of the influence of Hollywood's studio productions. Films in the 1970s increasingly featured more explicit sexuality and violence. And we also see modern blockbusters emerging like Star Wars. By the 1980s vcr disrupted the traditional movie theater space where movies were viewed but of course the film industry took advantage of this shift it is here i'd argue that our current mainstream films resemble most big budgets sequels huge actors although the 1990s created what i consider a second golden age in american film as so many huge influential movies were produced in a certain family-oriented style that is unrivaled in the 2000s the dvd marked a technological improvement in viewing but its life was of course short-lived as the digital age now surmounted it. Netflix is of course ubiquitous globally and in film and films have evolved not only outside the studio but now by streaming services. I'd argue that many films in the 2010s with their fixation on CGI and superheroes have degraded the quality of what we view, however there are many influential films in this period that wedge themselves between the superhero movies. It will be interesting to see where film takes us in the 1920s. One thing that's for sure is that film is not going anywhere. In 2019, 9 of the top 10 movies by worldwide box office revenue were in the billions of dollars. 68 films grossed over $100 million and and 282 movies grossed over $1 million. Films are certainly not going anywhere anytime soon. They are ubiquitous in our lives and as new markets develop they are truly global. Films tell us a story. In this regard, their function is something that long predates their existence. As I alluded to before, films replaced vaudeville at the time, but they have also superseded oral storytelling, poetry, books, and theater. Not, of course, out of existence, but if you ask someone, what is the last movie you watched and when, versus what was the last book you read and when, they will surely recall the movie before the book. It's simple. Film and now television are easily digestible ways to experience a story. Unlike a book, which requires reading pages and perceiving what the author tells us about the setting, characters, and plot, film shows us these details. We sit back, we relax, we use our eyes and our ears to soak in the images on screen and the sounds we hear, and we learn the story. And this is not to denigrate from film as being overly simplistic. Films can be complex, logical, emotional, and provocative. They can change our lives and they are by definition, though, easier to perceive than books. So this brings me to my question, why are films so powerful? Why do we love them so much? I've already touched on the perceptibility, but going further, there are just so many reasons. I just started a show called Quarry on Crave. It came out in 2016, but despite its HBO label, it's something you've probably never heard of because it only lasted one season. The storyline is that of a Vietnam veteran returning to Memphis disillusioned as the public shuns him from apparent association with a massacre. He ends up getting involved in an assassination business through a man called The Broker, and from there his troubles start. I put it on one night at dinner and it surprisingly grabbed me. I got wondering, as I sometimes do when I get wrapped up in a good show or movie, why do I enjoy this so much? What's so captivating about seeing these events unfold? In this case for me, Quarry mythologizes and romanticizes the evil underbelly of America. We get to experience this period that is based on history but is nonetheless a fiction. We see the cars, the dress, the zeitgeist of Memphis in 1972 as the American involvement in Vietnam was winding down and the aftermath of the civil rights movement manifested in the American South. We experience the violence, the hardship, the hurt, the collapse of order and civility in front of a screen. Our emotions are evolved and yet we don't get hurt. That is part of the enormous power of film and television. It takes its toll on us while leaving us unscathed. We try to imagine ourselves in the shoes of the actors on screen. We even go about our lives after watching with these images and ideas etched into our minds, If even for brief moments during the day. We drive down the street with our music on, feeling like we're creating a story in a movie, or we put on our sunglasses and walk down the street feeling the bravado that's shown in movies. We feel like the actors. We make stories from the storytelling. Yet, in reality, we're transplanting this fiction into our lives to break up the otherwise mundaneness of our everyday routine and experience. I think we've all done this, and some more than others. Obviously, I seem to do it a lot. And there's an enjoyment in not only escaping life to a dark theater to immerse oneself in a film, and who doesn't love the smell of movie theater popcorn, yet we also carry that experience outside the theater into our everyday lives, if only for a few days after the film. We see the world in brief glimpses of that last film or show we watched, and whether we like it or not, Film shapes our perception of the world. Film is a conversation starter. Since it is mass culture, we can spark discussions on what we thought of it to other people who can likely reciprocate their feelings on it or easily watch it and report back to us. It is therefore woven into our social fabric. They closely mimic our directionality. Just as we move, films move. Just as society moves through time, film evolves or seeks to evolve with the times. Sometimes it lags behind. Other times it goes too far forward. Film tells us about our present and our past. We see historical events depicted in film and think that things must have really been like that, when in actuality, many films distort history to fit the story and the characters. Just as history is an interpretation of the past, film plays this role too. Yet unlike the historian who, sh- who strives or should strive to follow the methodologies, the academic honesty, and the practice of the trade, film is not constrained to these parameters. What we get instead is a free-for-all to depict the past as the director and the screenwriter and the actors see fit. Is this so bad? It depends. For me, when I see history interpreted in film, I try to classify if its fictionalization is acceptable or not. And there's questions to ask. For example, how much of a role does history play in the story? Genre matters. A science fiction film is likely going to diverge from accurate history telling more than a drama might. I think a period piece should strive for historical accuracy since its whole construction is based on the temporal environment that it depicts. Put simply, time is the key element in a period piece. I think, however, that if films are to play such a strong role in our lives, they should honestly depict history and the events they cover when it is required of them. It is difficult to determine when it is required. But I think that we can agree that even though we use film as our escape, there are certain times when we want to see truth depicted. Rather than a manipulation, we don't want propaganda, and we don't want our intelligence insulted when watching a film. As Matthew McConaughey says, it's all about finding a balance. A balance is required between fictional storytelling and historical accuracy. This is not to say that the filmmaker cannot have an agenda. Most films have one. The degree to which this is obvious varies. I invite you to think the next time you enjoy a film, whether in the theaters or elsewhere, why you believe it is so powerful. The platforms we consume film evolve, the techniques evolve, a film's content varies with the zeitgeist. Nonetheless, film is here to stay, and its power over us will continue. I could go on about this much more, but I think this is something best left to ponder over. So, let's ponder over this a bit. Episode 3, Securing Thought. Follow me on Instagram, at Hayden Bulbrook. Subscribe if you're enjoying it. Until next time, I'll see you in the USA.